Callie, why don't you just introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Callie Wright, and I'm the Education Director at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund. Um, I work with teachers and students to educate folks um, about the Vietnam War and Vietnam era. Um, and I really focus um, both on the war and the era because, you know, the war itself impacted everyone at that time. We're here to talk about the uh, Selective Service System, otherwise known as the Draft and to share two interviews that you conducted with men who were drafted. Just in the context of the Vietnam War, that's a complex topic, but the history of the draft goes way further back than that. Can you talk a little bit about that part? Uh, the United States didn't create the draft, right? It's been, it has been going on for years and years before we became a country even. Um, but when we became a country, men were expected, it was considered an, an obligation and a privilege that you serve in military service. One thing that's kind of interesting is, is after the Civil War, they create a system of rights within the states, and states are then responsible for that drafting piece. Well, during World War I, we come to a system of more localized boards, um, and it is even more refined during World War II. And so by the time we start the Vietnam War, we've had a system of state and local boards um, that's really coming down from as early as 1917. And we come into this system um, that is incredibly complex. With all of the controversy around the, the draft during the Vietnam War in particular, it's easy to forget that two thirds of those who served were volunteers. Why do you think the perception doesn't match the reality? Any stats when it comes to thinking about the draft are really complicated because you're right, only a third of people were drafted. But if you look at folks who joined the military because of fear of the draft, that number goes up to more than 50%. If you were uh, a male who was 18, you were a sitting duck, you could be drafted. And so that actually caused a lot of men who joined the service to join because uh, they were the fear of being drafted. And all of a sudden you realize that the draft loomed so large in everybody's mind during that time. I also think it has to do with the, with the controversy of the war. As a nation, we still have so many things that we don't understand or can't reckon with about the Vietnam War. And I think the draft is certainly one of them. It's so important to reflect on all of those families um, whose lives were altered by that system. It's hard, you know, the draft is hard to talk about just like anything is hard to talk about in Vietnam because there's no one draft story, just like there's no one Vietnam story. You know, people will hear this and think, well, that's wrong, that's not what happened to me. And, and that's completely fair because no it, it may not be. And one of the most misunderstood things about the draft is this belief that like, it was only these people or only these people when in reality it was it was pulling from a lot of segments of the population however there were deferments for folks in higher socioeconomic statuses people with access to influence right if you had money and you got to go to college then chances were you would know how to get a job that would allow you to continue those deferments. Or if you had access to healthcare and doctors, then you could get a doctor that might get you out of being drafted. 
all of those were um, those deferments really speak to the inequity issue within the draft. And I think anytime you have an inequity or something that isn't fair, it kind of like pops up um, and looms large uh, in, in, our, in our mind. In 1969, we moved from a local board system to a larger draft lottery system. We moved from a board to a lottery system to address what people saw uh, were the inequities of the local boards. The local boards were the little group of neighbors, the people from your community who sat down and decided who, is, uh, who they chose uh, to, be, to come down and, and be drafted. And what might pass in one community as someone who could be deferred or excused from service might be someone in another community who was automatically called up. These changes from place to place made it difficult um, for people to feel that the draft was a system that was fair. So you spoke to two men who were drafted by boards, one from New York City and one from rural Georgia. Very different perspectives, very different experiences. What do you think are the uh, similarities that link these two accounts? One of the biggest similarities is they both have a lot of pride um, within the fact that they serve their country. And they both believed that when they were drafted and when they were called, that it was the thing, the right thing to do. I understand, you know, after speaking with Michael and Ernie, uh, I really understood a better for myself, the sense of pride around being drafted. And one thing that I really gleaned from both of these men was the incredible um, love and the incredible um, caring that they brought into their lives and into their communities after their service. And the incredible respect that they have for life because of their service. From the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, founders of The Wall, this is Echoes of the Vietnam War. I'm your host, Michael Crone, bringing you stories of service, sacrifice, and healing from people who still feel the impact of that conflict nearly 50 years later. This is episode three, Answering the Call. Welcome to the third episode of our brand new podcast. If you missed the first two episodes, you'll find them at vvmf.org echoes. We'll publish a new episode every two weeks, so be sure and subscribe. And if you like it, please share it with a friend who might like it as well. Either way, let us know what you think by leaving a comment on our website, vvmf.org echoes, or by emailing echoes at vvmf.org. Not everyone can get to Washington, D.C., especially these days, to visit the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. That's why we created the Wall That Heals. It's an exact replica of the wall at three-quarter scale, and it travels to communities all across America. The Wall That Heals and the Mobile Education Center that travels with it will be in Grundy, Virginia, May 6 through 9. For more 2021 tour dates and locations, visit vvmf.org. Ernie Guthrie was drafted into the military right out of high school. He served in the infantry and the army. He still lives in his hometown of Lincolnton, Georgia. I spoke with him about his experiences from our offices in Washington, D.C. via Zoom. Yeah, well, this is a very small town in Georgia, right on the Savannah River near the South Carolina state line. And uh, 
I believe our population is about 8,800 now for the whole county. And uh, it's probably less than that uh, back in 1969 when I was drafted. And our little city, the city of Lincoln, I believe we only have about 1,800 uh, total population. And uh, so it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, uh, we only have like one high school, one elementary school, and an uh, awful lot of us kin to each other here. Were you expecting to be drafted when you got your notice? What what was that experience like? I was. The, the draft for the Vietnam War was, was a big deal, maybe from the mid-60s to the early 70s. When you graduated from high school, if you didn't have some physical disability that would, uh, would keep you from serving, or if you didn't get in college or technical school and get a, a deferment for that period of time, or, or, or a lot of guys were able to get in the National Guard and Reserves, and uh, that kept them from getting drafted. Now, back during the Vietnam War, it was very unusual for a, uh, well, certainly National Guard never were activated and sent to Vietnam, but sometimes the reserve units would be not much, not as much as they have been in the last few years with the Gulf Wars and all. So uh, what would happen with some guys when, as soon as they completed college, their deferment was gone and, and they would give them quickly. And uh, that would usually make them older than I was because they attended four years of college. But uh, I graduated from high school when I was only 17 years old because of my birthday. And just watching it and worried about getting drafted and all, it just, it just looked to me like you had to get about, to be about 19 before they would ever draft you. And of course I was 19 when I got drafted. I never, got any kind of school deferments or, or went in the guard or the reserves or anything. So I was kind of a sitting duck. What were your feelings about being drafted and how did your family feel as well about you being drafted? During the time I was, I guess you could say, waiting to get drafted. Uh, there was uh, all kind of unrest in the United States, stopped the war. You know, we even had, there was even organizations, Vietnam veterans against the war that had served over there and all. And uh, it's funny, and I remember this very well. Every afternoon on the CBS News with Walter Cronkite, the first thing he would say, and you can dig back and, and see this, the first words he would say every day, 43 Americans were killed in the Vietnam War yesterday, or, or 50 or 10 or whatever. And it just weighed heavily on you. And then with me graduating in May of 1967 from high school, two people that I knew got killed in August of 1967 from this town, only three days apart, and it rocked this little community because there again, everybody uh, knew everybody and so many were kin to each other and all. And uh, it really weighed heavily on me and uh, about their deaths. And then in 68, we had two other young men. And all, during this whole time, 67 and 68, I'd not been drafted, but still in the war didn't me. And I, I knew that it was gonna come because I didn't have those Permits and stuff. So uh, my family, <clears throat> my family, you know, they would encourage me. You know, I'll just try to get school or get National Guard or something like that. And for whatever reason, uh, at, at that time in my life, I was into girls and hot rod cars and stuff like that. And I just kind of said, Nah, nah, nah. But it finally happened to me. 
Ernie, you're from a really small town and a draft board is made up of members from that area. So I'm assuming when you went in to be drafted um, that on that draft board, there could have been someone you knew. Can you speak about the experience of going down to your local draft board? Yes, uh, there's a story to be told there for sure with me. My parents were separated for a while and uh, for a short period of time, my mother lived next door to the lady, a lady named Levina Marlowe, she's still alive today, that uh, ran the draft board here. And you could just tell that, she, I don't want to say she hated her job, but, she, but sometimes it was as tough on her what she had to do. But anyway, when finally I, I got my notice and uh, it was, I, I think I still have it somewhere, it says something like, greetings from the president of the United States. You've been selected to serve in the military yeah, that, uh, that was real tough, but but I do remember, I didn't witness it, but at some point, Ms. Marlowe apologized to my mother for having to draft me. She was just doing her job. We didn't have any ill feelings toward her. And, you know, they had all these things back then where you could appeal and come up with reasons that you shouldn't be drafted and stuff like that. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't do that. A friend of mine, a guy that graduated from me, he joined the Navy to keep from getting drafted. And we met at a local service station here one day, and I actually drove him to Fort Jackson, South Carolina, to be inducted into the military. When I got back home that evening, my mother called me and said, Ernie, you got your draft notice. So, so the very day I carried him to be inducted into something, he joined, I got my, my draft notice. And, uh, and then also, you had to take a physical. You know, they, they'd load you up on buses, several bus guys went. And, uh, one of my, another one of my classmates went to take the physical at the same time I did. And we got back on the bus up there in Atlanta. He said, they didn't take me. And I said, why didn't they take you? He said, they said, I have flat feet. I said, take your shoes off. He took his shoe off and I took mine off. And I swear I couldn't see a bit of difference. And, uh, but anyway, we dropped along there. And, and uh, Kelly, I was uh, a very small town, very small school. There was only 35 males in my graduating class in 1967. And I'm the only one out of that class that actually got drafted. Many of them would have been drafted if they had not done the things that they did to get to the firmaments and, and get National Guard and Reserve and, and things like that. So, uh, but then uh, another interesting twist to the, to the draft is I'm currently, for this county and uh, district, I'm on the Selective Service Board. And should there ever be a need for the draft to be started back, I'm part of the Selective Service Board now that uh, sent me in the Army Vietnam. After you were drafted, where where did you end up uh, doing your training? And with, yes. what, and with what branch of service? I was in the Army. And uh, at the time I was drafted, now they were pulling some people into the Marines. And, uh, and uh, I know when we were in Atlanta, after we had physical and went back to be uh, inducted, it, it, it was almost a joke because you were standing there in line. They'd say, you want to be in the Marines, you want to be in the Army. And of course, it, early on in the Vietnam War, there's no question about it, the Marines were more involved in it than the Army. You know, they went ashore and stuff like that. Well, later on, we were landing in airplanes and stuff over there. But anyway, it's funny watching, you know, some guys would say, I want to be in the Marines. And they'd say, you're in the Army. And I was trying to, as my turn came up, I was trying to think, what did I need to say? I didn't want to be in the Marines. But anyway, I said Army, and that's where I wound up. So in, on September 2nd, 1969, I was inducted into the Army. I was sent to Fort Benning, Georgia, 
uh, for training, the basic training about eight weeks. Then after that, they determine what they call the MOS, what your MOS would be, main occupational skill, I believe what that stood for. And they decided mine should be infantry. And when I say infantry, I'm, it's light infantry, foot soldier, not a tank or artillery or whatever, but an actual foot soldier that would uh, would be trained to go to Vietnam. And, and I'll tell you, they did a very good job of preparing us. I mean, it, it was like, I, I remember a drill sergeant saying once, he said, when we get through with you, you're going to want to go to Vietnam and fight for this cause. And it was all, it almost became true, you know. So anyway, I finished my training in uh, January of uh, 70 at Fort Polk, Louisiana. And uh, one other thing I remember, Kelly, the day we graduated from advanced infantry training, we were standing in formation and they would call your name out and say, you know, they say, they say, Ernie Guthrie, Vietnam, Joe Johnson, Germany, or whatever. But I remember this one guy, and he was he was older than us, and I got to know him during training, but he was a college graduate. When they called out his name in Vietnam, he immediately questioned it. He said, why would you, I remember what his degree was. He said, why would you take somebody with a degree like I have and send them to be a foot soldier in the jungles or in rice paddies of Vietnam? That's my, my, my uh, education could benefit the military better in some other field. And the drill sergeant told him, he said, uh, we don't want to send stupid people into the infantry. He said, the smarter you are, the better your chances are of surviving. A lot of the times people that joined did not end up in the infantry simply because they joined for four years versus me being drafted for two years. They got to at least ask for something that they would like to be involved in, whether it was communications or uh, working on helicopters or being a mechanic or a supply clerk or whatever. So they had, a, they had, because they joined, they had sit down at some point with a recruiter and joined. They did have a little bit of a ch better chance of, of, of avoiding the actual infantry. I have uh, four grandsons and I always say it kept the draft going. I, I really believe it was a good thing for young men. Uh, I, I, I believe if I hadn't got drafted, I probably, wouldn't be the man I am today. And, and certainly Vietnam attributes to that too. But uh, but so many young people now, they, they lost and, and they need that discipline and, and, and all. And uh, so if the draft was reinstated today and my grandsons had to go, it would be okay with me. Sometime when I'm around my buddies now, especially guys in my age group, I feel like in, in my own way, I'm different than them. My country called me and asked me to do something, and I didn't agree with all of it, but I did. And I would do it again today. And, and I hope all people, men and women, would do the same. But, but sometimes, like I say, I kind of, I catch myself thinking, you know, not that I'm better than y'all, but I'm different than y'all. And, uh, and, and I take a lot of pride in that.
Michael McMahon, uh, who resides outside of New York City in New Jersey, was drafted just out of college. He was drafted into the Army Infantry, and I was able to reach him via Zoom uh, from our offices in Washington, D.C. When I was drafted, I had finished college. I graduated from college in June of 1968, and uh, I was working. I was working for Merrill Lynch and Company. I had worked for the company through college, and on graduation, I had difficulty trying to find a job because I, at that point, had lost my draft status and became 1A and was eligible for the draft. So Korea, looking for a career was basically hit the pause button. So I stayed at Merrill Lynch on a full-time basis, and I was just uh, working, waiting for the draft notice to come. Uh, I knew it was going to be coming in not too dif- distant future. I was at the time uh, Dolores and I were engaged. Um, I'm really lucky person. I became engaged and married my high school sweetheart. We've been married for 51, going on 52 years now. How did you learn um, that you had been asked to serve? Uh, I received a letter, um, a letter in the mail. Now, the the letter is, uh, and I often say to to students, uh, you can Google and come up with the draft letter. It's the same draft letter that millions of men who uh, were drafted during the Vietnam era received. Um, I, I have a copy of mine. There were two things that are distinct about it. One is the date. The letter begins and it says, greeting. You are hereby ordered for induction to the armed forces of the United States. Mine happens to be dated December 24th, 1968, Christmas Eve. So I received some cards that week that had the word greeting on it, but they were generally season's greeting, not the one that I received from my uncle. The other thing that I find interesting about it is in the corner of the letter is a New York City subway token. Back in the 1960s, the New York City Transit Authority used subway tokens to uh, be able to buy a fare. And uh, the draft board was noted that if they needed you for a uh, uh, physical or some sort of test, they would send you a letter and in the envelope, they would scotch tape two subway tokens. And when you received the letter, you would feel the letter. And if you felt two subway tokens, you knew you were okay because they wanted you down, but they were sending you home that night. When you got the letter that that ordered you to report, there was only one subway token in the letter, and that meant you were drafted. So that's how, you know, young men in New York City basically learned about the draft. Um, what part of New York City were you living in at the time? I was born and raised in Brooklyn and lived there for many years um, before I, I moved out of the city. But uh, I'm a Brooklyn kid. Um, did you know anyone at the time that had been drafted? I did. Um, and I, at the time, if, if you think of a group of friends, uh, think of your friends from high school, your friends from college. What happened was the group that we hung out with, if I could use that term, uh, from high school on, you know, one got drafted, was gone in the military for a couple of years, came back, somebody else went in. It, it was, you know, sort of constant that there was somebody either ready to go in or had just come home. And uh, when I graduated high school, and I I put in context this because it it does affect how I looked at the draft. When I was in high school, Vietnam wasn't on the radar screen. It wasn't an issue. 
generally those men who got drafted were sent to Germany or South Korea. Now, they were pretty stressful tours of duty. We were in Germany. We were, if I could say, eyeball to eyeball with the Russians with nuclear weapons. Uh, we had just gone through the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cold War, war was at a height. So it, it was pretty difficult duty, but, but it was in Germany. When I graduated high school that summer, the Gulf of Tonkin incident occurred. And so during college, the, the draft increased and the number of men in Vietnam increased. When I graduated high school, there were 15,000. When I was a sophomore in college, there were 200,000. Junior year, it hit 300,000. Senior year, it hit 500,000. So what happened was it escalated around me. And certainly in college, the draft became more of an issue than it did in high school. How did you feel about being drafted? Growing up in the 50s and 60s, I was a child of the greatest generation. Around my neighborhood, the men who were my role models had all served. My father served in World War II. There was an expectation. The draft, the, the draft was not a Vietnam phenomena. It began with World War I and the registration for the draft. When I think of my mother and father, my, both my mother and father were born before World War I uh, broke out. Their life was shaped by the influence of World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, and I think a commitment to service. When you get called, you serve. And I think there was an expectation on my part that eventually I would be called and I would serve. So there was never a, a feeling of anything, but um, you know, that's my, my responsibility. I, I, by the way, elected, and it was a conscious decision. I decided not to join the military. I uh, waited to be drafted. Um, I explored joining the military, but the military wasn't what I looked at as Korea for myself. Uh, the other thing is that draftees served two years of uh, active duty where people who voluntarily joined generally were responsible for three to four years of active duty. And when I was 21, three years was a, an eternity. So I, I allowed myself to be drafted. Um, how did your family feel about you being drafted? Did you have siblings? How did they feel about that? I, I did. I do have siblings. I, I'm one of five children. Uh, my father was uh, a pressman for a newspaper uh, for the New York Daily News and a union worker. My mother was a stay-at-home mom with the five of us. I think my father had a, a sense of pride, but he understood the risks being a veteran. And I think there was a nervousness about it. Uh, the, the things that about Vietnam uh, that strike me, especially for like my dad, we, we didn't talk a lot about it, but I, I asked my brother a, a little bit about my dad's reaction when I was in Vietnam and what it was like. And uh, one of the things that bothered, bothered him was more so those that were not serving. He saw the inequalities or, or the uh, inequities in the draft, people who weren't drafted. And, and there was a big sense of how can this son of say, somebody who was influential or a politician not be serving and my son have to serve. Um, and I think it was more 
you know, you had a draft card that gave you your status, but people didn't know what your status was. And, you know, people who had physical limitations and couldn't serve, they could be walking the streets just as somebody who who's 1A ready to serve. Um, and I guess when you have, your, when it's your, your son that's in the game, you want to know why others are not in the game. So he, he was uh, really troubled by that. Um, he also pointed out, my brother pointed out to me sometimes, the insensitive of, of other people talking to my father. I served with the 9th Infantry Division in the Mekong Delta of Vietnam. And I, I was in what we called, called Four Corps. And uh, there was one particular friend who my father had, he would talk to regularly, who would always tell him, oh, I was reading how bad the action was down in the Delta. You know, your son's at risk, you know. And, uh, you know, my father would be really upset, but couldn't say to him, you know, it's just the insensitive of other people talking to him. But I think there was a, a true sense of pride on his part of, of my service. I remember when I come home specifically, when I came home, I was a sergeant and I had my, re my ribbons on and all. And I remember how proud he was of, of my service. Can you speak a little bit about your relationship uh, with the woman who eventually became your wife and is still your wife, Dolores, um, and how being drafted and, and going to Vietnam changed that? If anything, it, it made it stronger, uh, the relationship stronger. When we, when I was drafted, when I was out of college, we planned on getting married. We, we were engaged before I left on the draft. We knew I had a leave after 16 weeks, which from January would bring it to May. And uh, we wanted to get married before wherever my orders were, like, we knew there was a high probability of Vietnam, but there was also probabilities of other places as well. But the commitment was we're going to we're going to get married. So we we set a date based on the calendar as best we could judge it, and it was May seventeenth, nineteen sixty nine, and uh, we went forward. Uh, what I will say, we burnt up a lot, we used a lot of change in the telephone. You know, there were no cell phones or emails or anything like that. You basically wrote, wrote letters and you connected on the telephone. So used a lot of dimes, dropped a lot of dimes, if I could put it that way. And, uh, you know, we, we, we were close, we, but it was, uh, you know, maybe tested, if it might be a word, uh, uh, we, we were separated, but uh, we were committed. And, uh, you know, we, we got married that May 17th. Even, it, was in, it wasn't until the end of my advanced training. I, I went through advanced training for infantry, uh, the, called the Advanced Infantry Training, AIT. And it wasn't until I finished that that I had gotten my orders. Right around the time I finished, there was an incident in South Korea in South Korea was, uh, we had a lot of uh, troops stationed, but they weren't, uh, they were, it wasn't hot, so to speak. We were in, in combat at the time. And uh, there was an incident in uh, South Korea and between us, North and South Korea, and the entire infantry class the Friday before, that graduated the week before ours, uh, was redirected to South Korea. And I just had my fingers crossed that, you know, I'll take South Korea as opposed to South Vietnam, but it, it didn't happen. Is that when you found out then that you would be going to South Vietnam? It was. When I finished, when I finished advanced infantry training, received my next orders, I found I was going to South Vietnam. 
when you when you got to Vietnam, was there a divide between folks who had been drafted and, and folks who hadn't? No, I, I didn't feel it. I, I didn't sense that. Um, the uh, the only difference was our serial our service numbers or serial numbers were different. Mine was US 52777327. Remember it as today. It's on my dog tag, but remember it. Uh, I'll never forget it. But it began with the letters US, which meant that I had been drafted. The people who had signed up for the military were RA, regular army, and their serial numbers began with two different letters. Other than that, I don't sense, didn't sense any difference whatsoever among those that were drafted and those that joined, or at least in my unit. That, you know, this is an excellent point to me, at least. We're, we've been talking for a few minutes now, and I'm telling you my story. And I think what, what I, I always try to do is encourage people to speak to as many veterans, Vietnam veterans, as they can, because each story is different. My next question is in 1969, we moved away from the draft boards. You know, the draft boards, these are the, the little groups of neighbors, right, who sit right. and kind of made the decisions. And right. we moved to a lottery, which, you know, was sold as a more kind of a pick, pick the birthdays out of the bowl um, and a more randomized situation. And then in 1973, um, the draft completely ends uh, and has not returned to this day. So you are someone who who experienced or who has bore witness to all forms um, of the draft in that way. What do you think about these shifts? I think the shift to the lottery was a very positive shift. There were some inherent inequities in the draft. And even if they weren't real, they were perceived. And I think the lottery took that away. My current day comparison is my COVID-19 shot. I've signed up to get my shot. And fortunately, my, my name has finally come up and I'm going to be able to get a vaccine next week. The only thing is, for weeks went by and friends' names came up or people I know or they got a shot, but it was in this black box and it was, how did they get it and I didn't? And I know other people have said the same thing about me. How did you get a date? but I didn't. I'm, I'm your, the same age. I'm the same physical condition. Um, and I think the draft was a little bit like that. It's how come, you know, you're, you're exempt and I'm not. And, and I think there were a lot of inequities that were perceived and that were real. And I think the lottery took that away. As far as the elimination of the draft, I think the nature of the military changed. How we fight wars, technology changed. And fortunately, we don't need to supplement. And, and really what the draft was doing was supplementing the gaps where we couldn't fill the need, people were drafted. And I think that uh, we, we don't have that gap any longer. We're, we, we have enough people, fortunately, who are serving and sacrificing for us. That was Callie Wright with Ernie Guthrie and Michael McMahon. These interviews were heavily edited for time in order to fit them into this podcast format. If you'd like to hear Callie's entire conversations with Ernie and Michael, you'll find them on our YouTube channel. We owe a big shout out 
to everybody down at the City Hall in Lincolnton, Georgia, who made it possible for us to get Ernie Guthrie's interview recorded for posterity. So thanks, y'all. We'll see you in two weeks for episode four, A Bump in the Road. I am not proud of being captured. I'm proud of the way I behaved while I was captured, and I'm very proud that I came back, I put it behind me, and uh, I do not let this experience define me.